Hello, welcome to the Lewisburg United Methodist Church podcast. Thanks for joining us today. For sermon notes and videos related to this message, please visit lwbumc.com. Today's scripture comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tagon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together in this place be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock And you are our redeemer. Amen. Most of my message today will come uh, in the form of a story. And so I pray that you'll you'll bear with me. Uh, I've asked the technology team if we're able to uh, uh, share a few photographs because I think images help us uh, understand uh, stories much uh, better than just words alone. Darren, if you don't mind, would you put that first photo up? Folks, these couples' names are Mick and Susan Hall. They live in Danville, Virginia, and they are here standing in front of the remains of their home. After a fire broke out, their home was a total loss. This home did not belong to Mick and Susan. It was a home they rented for $100 a month on the condition that they would maintain it. Mick was disabled, but he was still somewhat physically uh, strong enough to do little maintenance projects on the house from time to time. And uh, so Mick kept the house up, and they lived there with their four children. Next slide. The gentleman in the orange shirt is Harvey Hall, Mick's father. Harvey was a member of our church when we served in Huntington. And of course, when Harvey told us in the congregation of the news that his son and family's home had burnt, we were all very sad. And he said, just keep them in your prayers. We don't know exactly what they're going to do. So, 
not at Harvey's request. Oh, let me tell you a couple more things about Harvey. Harvey was a retired person, but he was doing a little bit of contracting on the side. Believe it or not, Harvey, for his entire career, had been a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps on Paris Island. But he told me one day after he retired from the military and moved back into the Huntington, West Virginia area, he says, you know, I had always planned, and you'll get a kick out of this, Rick. He said, I had always planned to play golf every day for the rest of my life after I retired. He said, and then I discovered playing golf every day was not going to cut it. <laughs> so he said, I went back and started doing some contracting works, room additions, etc. And I said, well, Harvey, uh, we're glad to have you and Irene here in our church. Much like Lewisburg, under the direction of Bev, the youth in Huntington were very engaged in doing mission work. And I just want to say again, as a side note, that it is my belief, Reva, Bev, all of us, that there is no experience more powerful for young people than to take them out in service and mission somewhere outside their comfort zone. And so having thought about that and having not had at that time when the home burnt any project ma uh, uh, planned, one day I asked Harvey to stop by the church, and he did, and we chatted for a while. And I said, Harvey, you know, we always do a week-long mission, and I know you're a contractor, but this is my question. If we committed our funds and we committed our time for a week to help get a roof, a house under roof. In other words, just simply framed up for one week and dried in. Do you think you could help finish it? Because what happened was the people they were renting from decided not to rebuild that little shack. And they had never owned a home of their own. And so our decision was, could we help them? Another thing that happened in this mix, that a member of the church had left $60,000 to the church for the purpose of allowing groups in our church to start and embark on some new ministry. As a loan fund, you could borrow from the $60,000, but it always had to be paid back. So we borrowed $20,000 from the loan fund with the plan to ask Mick and Susan to commit $100 a month in payment until it would be repaid. And so, embarking on this journey, our youth group made their way to Danville, Virginia, where we uh, uh, framed up a house. Here's a few more photos. Um, they're, they're, the first day we framed a house, if you notice, we had a huge windstorm at the end of the first day. You see this wall over here to the side? <laughs> the kids left, and the house was almost uh, three-fourths of the way framed. And when they came back the next morning, they went, oh, no. I mean, it was, it was really blocked and framed very well. It just the windstorm was incredible. Let's go to another photo. But there's what it looked like at the end of the week. You know, and we were so impressed with our young people, all high school seniors. We had about 22 youth, Bev, and it was just too hectic to have them work uh, all on the same site at the same time. It was just too much to coordinate. And so uh, we said, okay, we know that some of you like to stay up late at night. So here's what we're going to suggest. We'll have two crews. We'll have a morning crew and an evening crew. <laughs> and boy, they, they jumped on that. And so that's what we did. We worked uh, 12 to 16-hour days. 
in order to accomplish this feat. And they, they loved it. But the thing that the, some of the young people said at the end of the day was, when we left on Friday, can you believe we just built a house? They were just so amazed at the process that went through. Of course, we had Harvey there who said his... Uh, uh, site right out here in front of the house and did all the sawing and all the directing and everything. It was wonderful. And all week long, Harvey kept saying to us, I wish I could hand you the boards better, but I pulled a muscle in my back and I just can't do quite as much as I normally do. But if the kids will help, we'll get this done. And we did get it done. One other side story before I move on. I went down, just me alone, went down to help Harvey with the uh, concrete work on the foundation. He laid the block and everything. But he needed a little help with the concrete. And the day we poured the foundations for this house, a huge rainstorm came up about 6 p.m. And we were still just barely putting the last few shovels of concrete in. And then we had to cover it up to keep the rain from harming it. But I looked. It was in Virginia red clay. I was down in the dirt. I looked horrible. There was red mud all over me, and I drove to the convenience store because my mouth was about to dry out, and I just had to have something to drink, and I went in there and got something to drink. When I came back out, it was still sprinkling, but shoot, I was, you could wring water out of me. I was so drenched, and there was a, a person sitting there in a white Cadillac, and they rolled their window down just about this far, and they said, son, where have you been, and what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I said, Sir, you're not going to believe this, but we're building a house out here on, the, on the such and such road for a family that lost their home to fire, and we just, uh, I, we just got finished pouring the concrete, and I was just so thirsty that I don't care how I look, I just went in there to get something to drink. So I put my, I climbed in my car, and, uh, and I saw the window come down again. And so I rolled my window down, and they said, come here. And I, I went over there, they handed me a $100 bill. They said, here, put that on the house. And I thought to myself, they didn't know me from Adam. But there is, as Bev said, there is a spirit of goodness in humanity in the world. And we have to continue to believe in that in spite of all the things that can happen sometimes. Um, you know, show us one more slide there. You know, you expect the kids to get a little tired and sleep on the site, catch a few winks every now and then, but it's really discouraging when, next slide, when even your wife takes a nap on the roof (laughs) while you're still working. (laughs) It just about, you know. So anyway, we went home, and uh, Harvey had it far enough along that he could finish it. When Harvey got back, his back was still hurting him. And Harvey went to the doctor. It wasn't a muscle. It was cancer. And it was everywhere in his body. And I thought to myself, how can a human being endure that much pain and still work that hard? And then I thought to myself, Marine Corps drill sergeant. Oh, yeah. Tough as nails. Harvey didn't live but about uh, four or five more weeks. And there set a house unfinished. You ever heard of a group called Nomads? Anybody? It's a United Methodist organization. Nomads are United Methodists who own campers. Do you know this? 
and they travel all over the country when they're in their camper, and as long as a place gives them a place to park their camper, they'll work for you. We had two nomads who came and did all the electrical wiring on the house. We had teams of women that Reva led and teams of men that I led who went down for long weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and worked on the house. We started this house in June, and with the help of volunteers and others, it was finished on November the 8th and dedicated. It was a beautiful home. And the halls started to play for, pay, uh, pay their $100 commitment. And then we would go down every year for the next three or four years just to see if there was any projects or maintenance that maybe uh, Mick, needed, Mick and Susan needed help with. Their children were in high school. And then for some reason, there wasn't any change in their financial status. Mick said he couldn't pay $100 a month. And we were obligated to this trust fund to pay the money back. We said, well, Mick, can you pay $50 a month? He said, yeah, I can do that. So he paid $50 a month. And then we learned after we left and moved to Morgantown that Mick stopped paying the $50. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to Mick's heart, and I know his father was not there to say, come on, Mick, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Mick was disabled because he had a back injury, a severe back injury, and I know he took a lot of meds for that. And I don't know what happened. I never got too involved in that, but I suspect that some of that was maybe influencing his thinking at times. What happened after Reva and I left to move to Morgantown was uh, this house had to be sold because we had an obligation and a contract that had to be fulfilled. Even though we had given several, several, several months of, of understanding. I tell you this story this morning to remind us all that everything in life doesn't end happily ever after. Now, the, the Disney world, of which I put the castle on the front of your bulletin today, would like for us to believe that everything in life ends happily ever after. And sometimes I could be tempted to go back and say, in all honesty, I wish we'd never started that project. But I can't say that, Bev. Because there were so many lives that were touched and so many young people who were influenced by that experience. You cannot say in life that just because one thing doesn't go the way you hoped and believed and, and prayed for, that, you've just, that everything around it was a total waste of time and energy. You can't do that. That doesn't make any sense either. And here in my question in the context of the scripture today and in the context of this story that I'm telling you is that how do we make sense out of life? When things don't go the way we planned. I brought with me a, a little book here that, I, that has been a favorite of mine over the years. I don't know if any of you have ever read it before. It's by Harold Kushner. It's entitled, When uh, Bad Things Happen to Good People. Anybody ever read this little book? It's a wonderful, wonderful book. In the next to the last chapter... Harold Kushner says this. He's talking about Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob had his share of, of difficult times. 
It says, like Jacob in the Bible, and like every, every one of us at one time or another, you face scary situations, and you've prayed for help, and you found out that you were a lot stronger and a lot better able to handle it than you ever would have thought you were. And in your uh, desperation, you opened your heart in prayer, and what happened? You didn't get a miracle to avert a tragedy, but you discovered people all around you and God beside you and strength within you to help you survive the tragedy. I offer this to you as an example of a prayer being answered. A prayer being answered doesn't mean that it comes to pass just the way we pray it or just the way we want it. A prayer being answered means that we find strength to get through whatever happens. I am just very troubled, deeply troubled about what's going on in our world today. And, and the most difficult thing about the tragedies we refer to today as mass shootings is that they're born not from accidents, but from intentional acts of violence and destruction. That's the most painful part of it, that we don't know how to make sense out of, that we don't know what to do with it. And God doesn't look down from heaven, and neither should we who have faith in God somehow look, well, God's going to bring some kind of good out of it. No, my friend, that's, that's, that's Pollyannish theology. You know that verse we quote from Romans, all things work together for good to those who love God. Therefore, God must be authoring all the tragedies of the world. God did not author the tragedies of this world. They were caused by human free will. And we must learn how to hold on to our faith that no matter what happens, we're going to have faith in God. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king, King, you might throw us into the furnace, and our God, who we have faith in, can save us. But even if God does not save us, we're not going to stop believing. My friends, that's what real faith is. That nothing can destroy it. No experience, no event, no human free will can destroy the fact that we believe that God is over us all. And while we all have free will and make poor, stupid, awful decisions, God is in the midst of it, standing beside us, helping us get through the challenges of life. And so... There's one more quote that I want to offer up. I think it's on the screen. This is from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Do you know how many stories there are? I just told one story this morning. Do you know how many stories there are right here in the sanctuary this morning? Many. Many stories. I encourage us all to find a way to grow in our faith through the stories and experiences of our life. Jesus came down from heaven to show us how to live. And the religious ensemble of his day thought he was out to destroy them. And they crucified him. But God worked through it to bring life and hope 
to those of us who continue to live this life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Lord, we ask today that as we continue to worship in this hour, that you will guide our thoughts, guide our reflections, that we will trust in you, that we will learn how to take the events of our lives and the people around us and trust the deepest, deepest faith that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
I had one story to tell you today, but I know I'm supposed to tell you another story. So there I'll go. I was raised in a comfortable home, loving parents, one brother. My uh, family all lived around me, my extended family, and we went to church at uh, Mount Board Methodist Church in Princeton, West Virginia. My grandparents were there, my cousins were there, and it was a very comfortable place to go. And um, that's what my religion had been for most of my life. As uh, in my 20s, I was married and uh, drifted away from the church in the way that you do when you're in your 20s and life seems a lot more fun than getting up on Sunday morning and going to church. I had plans for myself and my life where my life would look just like my parents' life pretty much, nice little ranch house with two kids. And God said, ha. So I met my husband, and uh, we were both in sciences at Concord, and I really liked plants, so I was going to be studying plants. And I knew I didn't particularly like kids, so I wouldn't be teaching. That was the only thing that I knew. God led me to uh, work at um, the Elks Club because that's about as much fun as you can have working at the pool at the Elks Club in the summer. And while I was there, they brought a camp of children with disabilities to there, and I realized I could be comfortable working with individuals with disabilities. That fall, as I get back to Concord, they're starting, surprise, surprise, a program for um, um, teaching special education. So I switched over to that, and um, I have been wonderfully happy teaching and working with children with uh, 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 special needs in one form or another, and I'm now a, a specialist working with children with autism. And that's been 40 years, 40 years that I've been doing this, and I feel like that God led me there. When my husband and I were 29 and we had gone back to church because we'd had a daughter who was six months old and realized that we wanted to raise her in the church because we'd never really bolted from the church. We'd slid out of church. And we're both 29. He develops uh, Hodgkin's disease. And we realized then that it's a good thing we're back with the people that we know could be there for us. And... Uh, he gets treatment and things are good, but we do address the fact that the child that we have may be the only child we'll ever have. So we consider adoption. Um, and uh, we just investigate. It turns out things were fine. We had two more children, but the adoption thing never left us. And as a special education teacher, as a teacher of any kind, you see the children in need and you realize the need is there. So we started doing foster care. The uh, short version of this is 15 children have called me mom. The three that we, uh, uh, the three that we gave birth to and 12 others. And the training that I had for children with behavior problems has come in really handy uh, because these are children of trauma and children of trauma do not react. Actually, the first time I told them not first child not to do something and they did it anyhow, I'm like, what? You know what I mean? Did you not understand I said not to do that and I have your best interest at heart? And the answer is no. So somewhere along the line in our late 20s, when we started saying yes to God, I realized that the blessings were not in the comfort zone that I'd been living in. That the comfort zone that I was raised in in the church is not where I was supposed to be. 
So time and time again, I started saying yes to things that I'm incredibly uncomfortable with. Uh, taking children from other countries, taking children uh, in foster care, taking more kids than I wanted to take at a time, uh, taking children who have been traumatized in ways I don't want to discuss. Leading missions to countries where I thought I was to pick up another child. I thought when I first time I went to Haiti, which I was called to do, uh, that I was supposed to go, that I had another child there that I was supposed to meet. But God, when I came back, I told Mike Eastep, the pastor in Ronsford, I said, I feel that we're supposed to take missions to Haiti and somebody here is supposed to lead them. Well, you know, like 24 hours later, God said, it was you. Okay, <laughs> that's why you went. You were the one supposed to go. So we continue going to Haiti now. And time and time again, when I'm not even looking for things, God offers them. The reason I'm changing the story that I'm ending this with is because the last foster child we got, we had already decided we were not doing foster care any longer because we were adopting a child from China. And all of our paperwork had been sent, and we did not feel like we were called to do foster care anymore. But they called us to take a child whose mother was in prison. We lived in Alderson. And she had delivered rather unexpectedly. They normally do not have the deliveries here. So they had me go to the hospital and pick this infant up um, from her mother's arms as the mother's being returned. And um, so I have her. And every Friday and Monday, I go to the prison to meet the mother and bring her the child to know. She tells me she named her Imani because it's Swahili for faith. And she had asked God to send a family to care for her child because she had no one else to send them to. And her faith was so strong that it was striking to me. I want you to know I never expected to be going in and out of the prison on a regular basis. When May comes and it's time for her to go home, and uh, we had known she was leaving in three months, we couldn't do what needed to be done, which is you bring the child to the mother, they get on the bus together, and they leave for wherever they're going. They were going to Detroit. And uh, so you just hand over the infant to the mother, and we knew we couldn't do that. So we had told the mom, we will meet her at the gates of the prison when she gets out, and we'll have the child and the things that she needs to go home with. We bought a car seat, we bought her a stroller, we had saved the WIC formula that we had so that she had a way to feed her, we had enough clothes for her for the next year, and we would deliver them both to Detroit. And uh, we gave her mother a Bible with our favorite verses uh, marked in the Bible, and we trusted that God would take care of her. Not an easy thing, and I'm not going to let you think that we just let her go without sobbing and crying and wailing and doing all of these things. We got home on Wednesday, and on Friday night, the mother called and said, I will not be able to keep her. I will be going back and living on the streets, and I want her to come live with you. I can tell you love her. So... John told me this. I'd been on a field trip, and he told me the call had come in, and he had called a lawyer, and the lawyer said, don't do this. It's a bad idea. And he said, I want you to get the oil changed in the car before you leave, because he knew there was no chance in the world I wasn't going. So my next-door neighbor and I got up at 5 the next morning. We drove to Detroit, picked her up, did many things. I, it was a bad idea on every level. We 
wrote out a sheet of paper that said that we would have guardianship of her till the mother came back, and I told her to, to come back. To, she would have to come pick her up. So this is Friday night, and Saturday, we spend the night, my neighbor and I, in Ohio with this child. And when I open the suitcase, it's the day before Mother's Day, and there's a card in there for me from her mother, a happy Mother's Day card, and I knew she was never coming back. So we kept her for two and a half years, and her mother finally wrote, sent, oh, with, with faith that we had her. At any moment, her mother could have come back and got her. And yet we knew that she was our child, and we were supposed to have her. Whether we kept her in the long run or not, she was our child. We got up early that Sunday morning from the hotel, and we drove to Alderson. And I had, the Sunday before, I had asked everyone to pray for me because they had seen me with this infant from the moment she'd come home from the hospital till now, a child who, who treated us as her parents. And frankly, I don't know any other way to love a child than as my own. So, you know, I, when I show back up the next Sunday morning with the child, a woman stood and asked them to sing that song for us. And every time I hear it, I think of the day we were able to bring her home. And I know that my life has been different since I stepped out of the comfort zone. But that's where the blessings are. And the comfortable life I had as a child is the life that I was supposed to have. Because of the love, the unconditional love, and the comfort that I had as a child, it was God preparing me for where I'm supposed to be now. Every step of the way, God had prepared me for where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. And every once in a while, he would just name a child of mine faith before I got them. So I would know that he was with me and remind me that he's always with me. Thank you. 
to go And I keep on hoping for a sign So afraid I just won't know Show me the way Thank you for listening to this teaching from the Lewisburg United Methodist Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, and podcasts, as well as who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website, lwbumc.com.